From GreenBiz Group, welcome to Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. I'm Joel McCower. Life is different. It's like being on a different planet. And it really helps your imagination to look at things from a different direction. Katie Coleman is a NASA astronaut who logged time on two space shuttle missions and spent nearly half a year living on the International Space Station. She joined Jason Cruzan of NASA's Advanced Exploration Systems Division and me on stage at the Verge 15 conference in San Jose, California. We talked about NASA's efforts to work with the private sector to develop sustainable technologies for an eventual mission to Mars. Let's listen in. So this is really, uh, I I, I have been fascinated and excited about this, not just because we have an astronaut on stage, although that is kind of cool, but because of, of, from the moment I learned about this initiative at NASA, it, it captured my imagination uh, because it is so squarely in about what, what Verge is all about and what the sustainability to a large extent all about. So let me set it up really quickly. Um, you know, this initiative is about uh, NASA's efforts to uh, get the technologies it needs for long duration, long distance uh, spaceflight, also known as the mission Journey to Mars. Uh, how do you sustain life not only in uh, for how long does it take? Eight months or some long period of time to get to Mars. But then once you're there, uh, how do you build things and set up life, a colony or a community? Uh, you can't pack for that kind of trip the way you would pack for uh, a trip to the space station. Uh, you need to, to make things and, uh, along the way and, and do what, what, what all of you in some ways are doing, which is which is figure out how do you maximize efficiency of water, energy, food, everything, every material uh, with zero waste. So with that context, uh, I mean, uh, this is what we're going to talk about for the next half hour or so. Um, But I think maybe just to to set the stage, uh, Katie, uh, talk a little bit about what it's like. You've been on two shuttle missions and you spent, uh, I think, 180 days uh, in uh, in the International Space Station. So you have been there. You also, uh, Katie also was the mentor for Sandra Bullock, uh, right? Uh, For, uh, what was it called? For Gravity. For Gravity, uh, her Oscar-nominated role for Gravity. And so uh, it's just a nice tie in here that's kind of cool. Uh, not that being a half year on this space station isn't cool, but, <laughs> <laughs> but Hollywood. <laughs> wow. Now I'm real. No. Uh, so <laughs> give us a little flavor for what it's like to be in space. We're going to run a little video, I think, to, 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 uh, well, and I'm, just... I'm glad to have the video just because I, I think it's something that's really hard to share. And, and we came here Jason and I and our, our NASA team, to help you understand that actually what you do is exactly what we do. Um, This is my crew, my three-person crew, on their way to the space station for a six-month stay. And that's our little craft docking with the space station. And the space station itself is a national laboratory. And, And if you just see me flying through the station like that, I mean, that's what life is like. Life is different. It's like being on a different planet. And it really helps your imagination to look at things from a different direction. And also just 
being up there, realizing that people inhabit a space station, people are the people who will go to Mars, people have made those robots that are already on Mars, but it's an isolated place. And the things that we need to do to survive on, on the way to Mars and also to stay on Mars are things that were, are beneficial for our planet as well. You know, we, we saw some 30,000-foot views uh, earlier today, and, and this is just a different view, but all of them come together to help you realize that the things that we need to do to stay safe and to help people uh, live and then uh, thrive on Mars using our space station as a test platform, those same things are the things that I guarantee you you think about every single day. And the reason Jason and I are here is that we'd like to work on this together. So on, on both the uh, journey to the space station uh, and living there, and then of course, you know, on the Mars someday, you're not just going for a ride, you're working, you're doing experiments, you're testing, you're trying out a lot of different things. Talk a little bit about, and I also I think it's important to point out that you're part of your role, and I'm, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but you're the astronaut liaison to the NASA Office of Technology. The chief technologist, NASA's chief technologist. So the NASA's chief technologist. So you're, you're, you're in the tech piece of this beyond the, the experiments and other things that you're doing on board on a normal, that, that all of you and your, your colleagues are doing. What's the nature of the work that you're doing there? So my, my original background was as a polymer chemist, but a lot of, all of us do all, of, all the different experiments that are up there, and they have to do with the basics. We're, just, we're basically doing things up there that cannot be done down here, but have a lot to do with life on Earth. We're looking at, without gravity, or much gravity, what do liquids really want to do? Down here, it's really hard to know that, and we under, it, it affects everything that involves flow through a pipe. We understand a lot about the flow, the main flow, but at the walls, that's where those tiny forces are. Up in space, those tiny forces are actually large, they're easy to measure, and for spaceflight, we're finding out things like if you change the angle of that container by three degrees, three, I mean, it's a really small number, you can guarantee that all the fluid is in the corner of that chamber. So that's really great for us understanding maybe how much fuel we have on the way to Mars. But understanding those things helps us understand the capillary forces down here on Earth, everything affecting liquids. There's combustion. You know, because things burn in a different way up there, in sort of a quieter way without all that sort of lighter gases rising and new fuel rushing in, things burn a little more sort of quiescently. We can make measurements that we have to make in less than a second down here. We make them over 30 or 40 seconds. So the data we can collect is just not possible to get down here. We're learning about pollution, soot production, you know, how, how, how to burn things more efficiently. And That's is, just is, a couple of examples. And is that information being utilized uh, by the private sector? How does that transfer? I would say it's being utilized um, never enough. We have a technology transfer program that we work really hard on. There's a, a lot of our data is open source, and I would say most of the space station data is, uh, is open source. And so that data is being used to help design, for example, in the case of liquids, you know, lab on a chip. People are using that data to understand how to make, you know, better little slides that could be, you know, uh, little ways to understand, you know, how, whether you're healthy when you're in a place where you don't have uh, medical care all over the world. Well, Jason, somehow this started running before you, you did, but let's uh, talk, talk us about the initiative that you run at NASA. What are the contours of, of the program? 
Yeah, so NASA is really embarking on something we haven't done in a long time, which is leaving low Earth orbit. Um, so we're approaching 15 years of continuous crewed presence in low Earth orbit, um, and we're learning an immense amount of things about fundamental science and materials, opening up actually commerce in low Earth orbit. What are the, how can you actually make businesses that actually make money in low Earth orbit? But then we're also building all the systems that we're going to be able to sustain life away from the planet. So we talk about this phase that NASA's been in as being our Earth-reliant phase. We're extremely reliant on Earth today. 15% of every launch in the world goes to actually supply the logistics chain for uh, the space station. So you think you guys have logistics problems? We have them as well. Um, the, the distance is actually probably shorter than yours, but ours just happens to be vertical. Um, and we're trying to reduce that logistics chain because we, as we go away from Earth, it actually becomes really a logistics problem for us. And how do we actually make it so that we don't need more consumables? How do we reuse that? How do we actually create the ability to fix things in space and be able to live away from the planet for a longer and longer duration of time? And eventually to be truly Earth independent, meaning whenever we get to a destination, uh, Mars, uh, when we get to the surface of Mars, how do we actually learn to reuse what we have and then actually live off the land so we can actually reduce that logistics chain so we can just spend the logistics on getting people to and from, not just everything to keep them alive as well. So that's, our, that's the hard problem we're going after. One of the things that struck me as we talked uh, over the past couple months that probably doesn't come out as much from the you know, NASA Public Office of Public Information is that Things in space, systems that support life, break down a lot. And that means that you and your earthbound colleagues are constantly uh, doing, uh, you know, the, sort of the ultimate maker movement up there in some ways. Uh, just, you know, some of the things you expect and you have, the, the, I'm sure, the necessary tools and parts and some things you don't. Um, that takes on a whole different dimension when you're going to Mars, doesn't it? Uh, Jason, talk a little bit about, first of all, just from a programmatic perspective, and then Katie, just you know, from the experiential, just being Yeah, there. so you think about everything that it takes to keep you alive here. What do you need? You need water systems. You need oxygen. You need to remove CO2. You need waste management systems and, and all that. Um, all those systems, and this is why we're doing all this critical testing on the space station, don't work. Um, as, as the greatest technologies we have known to our uh, abilities, they're, they're still very, very troublesome. So which, that makes us fly even more logistics and more replacement hardware that we have up there. Carbon dioxide removal, uh, which is probably something we're really worried about here as well, is extremely difficult. Um, and we're finding it is one of the most difficult problems that we have in our closed environment on the space station as well. Water recycling, we're 85% closed loop. Um, on board the station today, and we're going after that last 15% in debrining type technologies, um, which I have a lot of application here in California as well. Um, so that's, that's the types of things that we're struggling with. We, we are also trying to figure out, instead of just bringing all the spares and trying to predict everything that was going to break, usually with predictions, they're typically wrong. Um, so you end up carrying a lot of spares that you end up using, and the thing that does break is something that you didn't have on, on board already. Um, so how do you uh, factor into things like additive manufacturing? How do you allow that maker movement of, uh, of crews in the future, astronauts in the future, to actually be able to fix some things? And we, we are fixing things with our crews on orbit instead of bringing it back and forth. They've done everything from soldering. We have a 3D printer up there where we've done some rudimentary tests with at this point. But how do we advance that to more complex systems? Um, and and that, that's 
that's what we're doing today. So Katie, based on, on what you've experienced <clears throat> and the things you've had to fix and build and jerry-rig and, and otherwise you know, just pull together on using your own you know, basic instincts and, and in, uh, ingenuity, how, what's the degree of difficulty on a long-duration space flight for doing that? And what else do, the, do, do your, your successors, astronauts, need to be able to learn that? And do, do they have the skills? Do you, what is your fear around that? Or? Well, I wouldn't say fear, but you know, Jason, in some ways, painted a picture that might make you worry about us up there on the space station. And, and, and actually, you should, in that space flight is, is dangerous and there are risks involved. Not that you should worry, but, um, but basically, uh, for us up there, we always have a lot of different, you know, like redundancy. You know, we, we have several waste management systems or the toilet. I was in charge of fixing the toilet and knew everything about, uh, about doing that and about recycling the water. I, I love telling kids that we, you know, basically I show them the toilet and I say, you know, everything goes right in there and everything liquid, you know, goes through these little pipes and all these little filters comes out and we drink it. And, and you're, you're drinking the same water again every, I think, six days? Is that we what, are. Yeah. We are. And uh, drinking uh, yesterday's coffee today is, is kind of... Just, just don't think about that too much. <laughs> well, but, you know, think, but think about it down here. You know, that's what we're doing down here. We're recycling water. We have wastewater treatment plants. Ours is just closer to home, and, you know, and, and we have to fix it when it breaks. What Jason brought up, I think, is really key, figuring out how to build things so that people who are up there or robots that are up there can fix them. And you know how how small a piece does a, a person who's up there really need to be able to get to and fix? And the simplest thing is to make something that's not going to break, put it in a box that you really can't you know don't have to get into, and have replacement units like that. But what we're finding is that our guesses on what needs to be replaced are are not right, and that's why the space station is that experiment. It's finding out that you know a pump system that recirculates all the cooling um, for the whole space station that runs on small pumps, you know, very small pumps like this, but that are housed in giant boxes, that's probably not the ones to bring with us to Mars because we need to be able to go out and replace just the parts, you know, that don't, uh, that, that break. And very complex, like compressors, four-stage compressors that actually, how do you fix a compressor in orbit? Um, that's a big challenge uh, as well. And they're kind of bulky pieces of machinery. And we've had that kind of challenge, and you can't bring that many compressors with you. So maybe there's a different approach you use instead of a standard mechanical compressor. There's maybe there's some next generation technology that doesn't uh, use that mechanical system. Well, we want to get to sort of how you're finding those next generation technologies in a second, but in anticipation of this conversation, my wife and I went out and saw the Martian movie, the new Matt Damon movie, uh, because uh, it, it, it happens to be about uh, uh, someone who was left behind in a uh, uh, in a mission to Mars, was left behind by circumstances and had to make do, had to you know, to make do by something that was going to be months, if not a year or more, before they could get back there. And so he built, he grew food, uh, he figured out how to make water uh, by uh, uh, burning hydrogen and oxidizing it to create H2O, and, 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 a, and a whole bunch of real, I mean, it was, the movie is to a large extent, it's about the ingenuity that he had and then all the things that came upon, and I won't spoil it, but, you know, typical Hollywood hijinks ensue. Um, when you looked at that, was that like just so Hollywood or was that real? How, how much that felt like this is the kind of stuff we face? You know, for me, I'll let Jason speak more to the systems, but, you know, people went to go see a movie and they thought, wow, living on Mars might be something we could really do. 
and it brought them into that world. And it's a world that Jason and I live in every single day and have been actually for years looking at systems to help us get to Mars. And the reason that we're not going yet is because we're not ready. And, and that's really why we're here, is to gather partners and have people realize that sustainability, closed-loop systems, or even just sustainability up in space, is, has a lot in common with what you need right back down here on Earth. I actually love movies like this, like, the, like Gravity, where it, I think different people explore in different ways, and you go to the movies to go someplace that you can't go by yourself. And I'm really glad that those filmmakers brought people to a space that we will be going and gave a little look. I thought it made it actually look very easy, all the stuff that Matt Damon went through. I, I'm like, oh, it looks way too easy, because in reality, I think it's harder. What, Jason, what do you think? Yeah, I would, I would, I would say the same thing. I mean, if the, the luxury of the, the book that was based on, uh, Andy Weir is a great author on it, and uh, very scientific in nature. So a lot of things actually were scientifically accurate in the whole thing, which is really great. Some of the things he got better than us, um, which is he was looking at commonality of systems. How do you move a system that was intended for this purpose and move it over to another purpose? We don't do that today. Maybe we should be. Did you get ideas? Yeah, from that absolutely. I mean, these are things we've talked about doing in future modular uh, life support systems and all that. They, in the movie, it actually set up the premise of actually being able to reuse things. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't suggest burning hydrazine, but um, that might be a little bit of a dangerous operation. But, uh, but other things like that, uh, the modular uh, oxygen and CO2 scrub scrubbing machines and all that, those are, those are great analogs. Maybe we should have uh, more uh, redundant communication systems. Should we actually build our comm systems that are actually interchangeable between robotic and human missions? So that kind of engineering approach is really intriguing to us. Yeah. Um, so it opened up some new ideas. I think it even shows some of the partnerships. You know, when you see him growing potatoes, you know, Department of Agriculture, we're working with them. Uh, all the work that he does on energy and making sure he's got enough power, you know, it's um, Department of Energy for us. So all, all, over the, all over the government, you know, we're actually joining with our partners to make the road happen. And, and how he made soil in the first place to, to grow potatoes, which is really, I mean, it's really quite amazing. And see it in 3D if you possibly can. Um, so let's talk about some of those partnerships, particularly with the private sector. How much of the technology uh, that do you need to, to go to Mars? I know you can go to Mars now. You, have the, you can do it in a sort of a blunt force, inefficient kind of way. But to meet the kinds of expectations that you and obviously your stakeholders have and to protect the lives of, of Katie's colleagues and everyone who will, who will be part of this, how, what do you need? What are you looking for? Yeah, so How can some, we help? Yeah, some of the things that we have is um, we are growing food in space today. We have an experiment called Veggie. Um, we've been experimenting with uh, different lighting systems over the past years and actually growing more efficient uh, food production based on the lighting conditions to provide that. It's actually being used in greenhouses for sustainable uh, plant growth today. We need to do that even, uh, even better, even more on scale. You see some of the artwork that was in that kind of loop that we saw there of a, of a vegetation module. Um, we don't know how to do that in a power efficient uh, way at this point, um, but we probably want to have something like that. Carbon dioxide removal systems. It's probably our number one most uh, troublesome system we have on board the space station today. Um, how to do carbon dioxide removal better. I'm sure there's some folks here that actually understand those processes as well. Um, moving from just sorbent beds to next generation technology for that. Um, th those are some areas, environmental monitoring, keeping the crew safe. I mean, it's a closed loop environment that they're living in. Um, now we're going on 15 years. We have obviously air replenishment over time and those kind of things. But in fact, they're breathing in the same 
raw materials that we brought up over time. So how do you actually monitor what the crew is breathing and what environment are they really living in from a radiation, from an air quality point of view? We have off-gassing. How do you get rid of some of those complex uh, things that are in off-gassing that occur on the board stage station? Those are some of the key factors. Um, miniaturization of all this technology uh, and getting its bulkiness down so that we need that reliability of systems. Maybe reliability is because you have 20 spares on the shelf. Um, versus the one piece of very elegant hardware that most of the time works, but it's so huge and bulky and complex it can't be repaired. Yes, I'd like to emphasize that the space station is our test bed. It's, it's only one of them, but it, it's the one that we're using up in space to test, test some of these technologies before we you know, take them further. But it's also your test bed. I, I found if you look back through history that um, technology and mission and passion are the things that, that drive innovation and computers became smaller when we needed them for the space program. Uh, robotics become smaller when we need them to be um, able to be used in certain environments. I was part of a, a mission looking at robotics both for, um, for, for medicine and, and realizing that you couldn't get that whole robotic system in a helicopter to get it to geographies that were far away. And so the mission can drive you know, advancing the technology and that's actually an opportunity for everybody here that is thinking about, you know, we'd like our, we have some really interesting technology, we'd like it to succeed. Well, maybe it's something that by using the space station we could accelerate the acceptance of that technology. Uh, one of the things, of course, once you get to Mars, uh, you, you're gonna build things there. And you talk about carbon dioxide removal, there's a whole new generation of technology to make plastics, mm -hmm. uh, cement, and, and other obvious, you know, building, not just building materials, but just materials, advanced materials, out of CO2. Uh, where are you, are you playing with that? Are you, I'm sure that's on your radar very yeah, much. Yeah, so we do have investments in like synthetic biology uh, based systems that are actually using the CO2 as a resource. And we're using that to do bioplastic uh, generation and, and, and those types of things, or, or biomining, how, how to separate out things. Um, CO2, I mean, is plentiful on Mars. It's 70 some percent of the atmosphere of Mars. Um, so we don't see it as a negative. We actually see it as a positive for that, uh, meaning that it's a raw resource that we have to go use. Yeah. Um, we can get a lot better on using it. Um, you said one of the magic words, investments. Uh, NASA's investing, what, how does that work? What do you have an investment vehicle, obviously? Yeah, so we, we invest through a number of internal, in-house kind of expertise. We also actually release public calls um, to industry as, as a whole, and they're, and they're under different kind of programs and such that we'll talk about actually in our workshop this afternoon, is there's different calls where industry, where we actually look for that overlap of Earth-based application, space-based application, and maximizing the use for both cases. Um, so that's, we have a whole series of calls that we do on that on a periodic basis um, that we actually work with industry. And we actually want more industry than just our aerospace partners. Um, the space program was started at a point that there wasn't an aerospace industry, and we were actually were able to rely on the entire industry. We kind of narrowed ourselves down to an aerospace industry, and quite frankly, right now, what we're trying to do is broaden ourselves back out to the, use the entire, entire industrial base. Can you give an example of a, of a industry, if not a company, where you found, unexpectedly, found a solution and you didn't think it would be coming from that part of the ecosystem, uh, the I'm thinking of the spacesuit glove. The spacesuit glove challenge. I, I was going to mention that um, Jason talked about, you know, the sort of more, not so much official, but conventional ways of, of 
partnering with folks, but we also, I think NASA leads the, the government in prizes and challenges and using that to really spur innovation and actually bring people to us to help us solve our problems. And, and so there's one of the challenges was designing a better spacesuit glove. And it, the solution actually came from someone who was a designer for Victoria's Secret who designs like the angel wings and other garments for, for uh, Victoria's Secret. But you know, it's, it's a serious thing where somebody who's thinking in terms of design but function, you know, we need that kind of multidisciplinary um, approach. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting. The Victoria's Secret thing reminds me of, where was this going, possibly? <laughs> <laughs> that, um, one of the things you've, you've experimented with is, you know, people, you can't wash clothes or you, or you have some to launder clothes and people uh, working and living and working in space have to wear the same garments for long periods of time. How, how does that happen? How do you, what, what, what are the technologies that, do you have self-cleaning clothes or what, do you, what are you doing? Well, we're looking, we're looking at that. I, I was the, uh, the we, we have lots and lots of gym clothes and then the regular clothes, not so many like, you know, six shirts and six pairs of pants for six months. Um, but you know, it actually surprisingly all works, all works out. I was the gym clothes police for our crew. Like, okay boys, it's that special day. Yeah. I am just telling you, it's that day we're all wearing How did you get stuck clothes. with that and toilet duty? That just like, <laughs> seems so unfair. Um, you know, I loved every minute up there, and I would have stayed another six months in a minute. But we are looking on the space station, you know, experimenting with different kinds of clothes that can be, you know, washed less or less, less yeah, often. Yeah, we have a, an actual whole initiative of kind of advanced clothing work, which is we're not, NASA's not inventing new clothing. Um, we're actually going out in industry and finding the existing materials that actually do work for longer duration, and then doing a real rigorous test program on them. And actually, we, we tested a lot of it in the gym at NASA Johnson Space Center. And we had a lot of our volunteer staff that actually wore it during the gym days. And actually, we got a lot of performance data on biologicals, on odor control, and all these things. And actually, there, there are solutions that exist in the commercial market today that could allow us to go extremely long wear clothing without the unpleasant side effects of biological growth or, or, um, or odor, odor control. Um, and so, it's actually, we found that solution in industry, not, not something that NASA went off and did. So you're both going to be part of a, a workshop this afternoon uh, with two of your uh, private sector partners talking about how uh, NASA works with the private sector. So we'll, we'll, we'll learn more about that later. But right, right now, let's get to some questions from uh, Lorna and Elaine. Uh, what are we hearing out there? Getting a lot of interest in manufacturing in space. I think people have seen some of the media coverage out there for adapting 3D printers um, to, to take on space flights. And in particular, the audience wants to know more about some of this materials science you were talking about, how that could be fused into 3D printing, and specifically what types of components or even larger objects might be useful to 3D print. Yeah, so our current experiment that we've done on Space Station, which is a, it's a small demonstration printer that we did with a commercial company called Made in Space, actually located in here in, in San Francisco, down the street. Um, and it's a plastics printer. Um, so we're starting with the basics and actually relying on industry uh, and where their capabilities are. That, that allowed us to get material characterization of strength. We talked about, Katie talked about flow of water. Well, we got, we worried about flow of plastics in space. Does it actually uh, go through the extruders differently? Because 3D printing, you're deposing a small layer in. Now, how do you do that in microgravity? So, exactly the same. It turns out the forces of, uh, of bonding between two layers of plastic is a primary fo force. Gravity is actually not actually the primary effect in 3D printers, um, that actual bonding force. So those micro forces that actually get stronger in space 
um, actually perform really well. And now what we've done is we've done 20-some prints on Orbit today, including a first uh, design to upload your email to print kind of thing that all occurred in less than a week of a new wrench uh, design that you probably saw out there. Um, and now we brought all those samples back to understand fundamental material, material characteristics. We put those through a rigorous testing program on the ground, testing program on space, and we'll move from plastics into different types of stronger and uh, strength plastics and then into low temperature metallics and other areas there. And in fact, that's actually one of our areas of concentration this next year is moving into how to build the structures that can now not only be inside of a space station, but outside. Um, we're actually going to put out a call with us and DARPA working together related to that. Um, so, and we're making all the materials data that we've collected, uh, both on the ground and in space, open source. Um, so that entire materials database and all, this, all of its characteristics will be fully open to the public. Great. Lauren, what else? Okay, this one I can't resist. What does it smell like on the International Space Station? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've heard you have to ask the visitors that, right? <laughs> um, and that, it, you know, we, I don't know, it, it smelled fine up there. Seriously, though, the thing about clothes and um, it's a little easier to stay cleaner up there, but we are using these new fibers that, that seem to keep people, you know, cleaner. And um, I think it was fine. <laughs> but when we do get hardware back, the little bags that the hardware comes back, you can tell when you open the bag where it came from. Really? Uh, it does smell different. <laughs> Seriously, so, what is that? What do you mean? It, it's just different. It, it, it's, it's that kind of Actually, environment that you have up there. You know, you know that this came from that. Asia versus America? <laughs> no, it's from space station or not. Oh, I see. So you can yeah. tell something came from space. You know, I'll actually I'll vouch for that in that I've you know, had some things that we get to bring things back with us in about a little sandwich bag, about that big. And, and when I go to that little bag and open it up, it has a, a certain smell to it. I want to go back to the wrenches, the 3D printed wrenches, just that those wrenches are ones that, um, it's actually like a, a little faster wrench, that all of us have one of those in our pocket at all times. And there are, are seven on the space station. That means there's one in the toolbox and every one of us, all six, have a wrench. And when you lose yours and then you sneak over and you borrow the one that's really in the toolkit, but then when that one goes, you are in big trouble. That wrench, that wrench is your friend, it's essential, and you hate to be without yours. So I am somebody who's a big fan of the 3D printing of And we do lose a lot of things. And we do lose a lot of things on the space station too, because it's just, it's like a five bedroom house um, where the residents of the house change every six months. Um, so imagine your family packing up the entire house and then somebody else moving in six months later and you try to figure out where everything is. And your keys um, can literally be anywhere. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so uh, speaking of wrenching, they're going to wrench us out of here in a second. But as you, um, as we talk about this in, say, at Verge 2018, what's the story you hope to be able to tell about how far, how much closer you are to, be, to having the tech? What are some of the breakthroughs that you want to be able to talk about in three years that will allow you to get there? where you want to go. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's how do, we, how do we make things simpler, although solving the complex problem we have is how do we get to a simpler engineering solution, not an elegant one, that's higher reliability, and that we've actually uh, tested on the space station, because a lot of things don't happen the way you think they will happen once you put it to space. So that, that whole s s designing for simplicity um, Mantra is one that I kind of push on my teams is how do we make things repairable, higher reliability, and all that. Um, so I think by 2018, we're, we're constantly testing new technology on the space station. We'll continue to do that in 2018. And in fact, even passed into the 2020s on the board of the space station. Yeah. And, and having some of those fundamental knowledge advances, just continuous progress all the time yeah. with us and industry, I think is really, really critical. And I think that what you'll see as well is the progress that we've made you know, towards that journey to Mars. By that time, you're going to actually see those systems implemented here on the ground all over the world. 
I'm, I'm actually just sure of that. Yeah. And that's why we're here today. Yeah, that's great. We're really excited to have you here. There's an old axiom in the sustainability world that sustainability is a journey, not a destination. And you certainly bring a, a whole new meaning to that, uh, that axiom about you know, what it takes to, to get from here to wherever. And it's, it's a fascinating conversation that we look forward to continue to have with you and this entire Verge community. Please join me in thanking Katie Coleman and Jason Cruzan. You've been listening to Katie Coleman and Jason Cruzan of NASA in conversation at the Verge 15 conference. For more Center Stage podcasts, go to greenbiz.com slash center stage. And while you're there, tune into GreenBiz 350, her weekly podcast covering the news and the people behind the news in sustainable business and clean technology. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.